You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Kreppy, the Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Appreciate everybody for checking out the podcast as always. And of course, a reminder that you can check out my work and the work of uh, many of my fine colleagues at OregonLive.com. And obviously all the work on covering the Ducks. And as you might imagine, uh, there will be lots of coverage on all things Oregon football. Uh, for the next several weeks as the final three games of the regular season and potentially a Pac-12 championship game. Uh, The caliber of competition rises, uh, so therefore, obviously, the caliber and the heightened attention uh, across the board, uh, locally, nationally, you name it, uh, takes a very different tone and uh, tenor and approach uh, over the next month. So as long as the Ducks keep winning, uh, obviously, their chances of making it into the college football playoff and plenty of things else uh, in terms of the postseason really, really ratchet up. So we'll get into all that in the weeks ahead as long again, there'll be plenty of time to get into all that kind of stuff in terms of quickly going over. And I don't even want to say recapping last week's game with Colorado, because what is there to say? Quite honestly, um, you have to keep it in a degree of perspective and context. That's why I'm not going to go through it in nauseam take an early look um, and and approach and perspective in terms of Washington. Then we'll chat with Mike Burrell, the Seattle times, get his perspective on things from that side of things um, with the ducks and the Huskies this week, in terms of going back briefly to last week in the game that was um, again, I'm not going to make more of it than what it is. Oregon can't control that. It's conference schedule was what it was. When you play opponents like this, you basically have one job and that is to just go in handle your business, win in a game that you're expected to win in lopsided fashion, do so, get in and get out and get out hopefully as healthy as possible. And from that perspective, Oregon basically achieved that. They were down a couple of players. They knew they were going to be down a couple of players. They went out and they produced in pretty much every fashion that they could at a really high level. Um, Yeah, ends up just shy of 500 yards of offense for those who were going to obsess about any which metric and statistic that none of that really is that consequential to be quite honest. It just isn't. Um, does, did the, the outcome in any way or you're feeling about the outcome at 49 to 10 change because it was 479 yards as opposed to 510 yards or something? No, I mean, stop. So Bo Nix was efficient, accurate, productive, gets in a receiving touchdown, which was a nice gimmick play, which was fun. Uh, obviously for pure entertainment purposes, the offense was not stopping at all. It wasn't. 
Um, Colorado is, we know, not just the last place team. They're a bad team. They're a bad team that was also outcoached badly. They are what they are. That's why I'm not going to make a lot out of this. Because, to me, Oregon did exactly what it was supposed to do in a game against a massively inferior opponent. It took care of its business, and that's all you can ask for. You know, you don't need a bludgeoning um, to the nth degree, and at 49-10, to 10, it very nearly was anyway. You didn't need to pile up 20 and 30 points in a quarter in order to get your point across. Oregon dominated the game from start to finish. First three touchdowns in unusual ways. When I say outcoached, outcoached because... They do things like tackle eligible with Josh Connolly Jr. and get him a touchdown. And the defense absolutely should recognize that on the field. It should have been something that was identified before the game, even if not before the game, on the drive by the coaching staff and relayed quickly onto the field that, hey, this guy's wearing an eligible jersey number. He may not have done it before because, well, he couldn't have done it before if he's wearing a jersey that makes him ineligible. That's one of the statements after the game from Mike Sanford. Well, you know, they hadn't they hadn't had him, you know, do it before. Well, no, they hadn't had him do it before because he was wearing 76 before. Kind of hard to do it. That that's where I say, like, you can't just Kenny Dillingham has added wrinkles each and every week. He's continued to do it. He's put a lot on tape. And he, and I don't mean any of those things in a negative context. I mean, he's done all those things and it continues to work out really well and really nicely. That to me was one of the takeaways from the game. They did things that should have been recognized by the other team, weren't, in part because they're Colorado um, and they're not very good and, and it's an interim coaching staff on its way out the door. And even if they didn't have all those things, they still are just not as talented. Second, because this staff, top to bottom, but especially on offense right now, is working at a really high level. Everything is working out very nicely, as we know, for the last two months since the season opener and they've put, they have been able to put a lot on tape and get the ball to a lot of different skill players, both out of the backfield, across the receiving core, you name it. And basically everything's come up rosy for the last two months. Now, again, the caliber competition has been different. We're talking in this case about last week's game of Colorado, but it could have been very much the same way in the same conversation the week before about Cal. It could have been about Arizona. It could have been about Stanford, you name it. So that's where I say I'm not going to make a lot about any one of these statistics or outcomes or players or whatnot. In the big picture, Oregon did what it was supposed to do. It handled its business. It got out of the game largely unscathed. Uh, Obviously, the targeting penalty on Jamal Hill knocks him out for the first half against Washington. That's something you can, you know, you you can hate the penalty all you want. You can want the rule change all you want. Bottom line is it ain't going anywhere. And, you know, there's just going to have to be (laughs) adjustments made by players uh, and coaches to avoiding some of these situations. It's happened a couple of times to Oregon this season. It has. What can you do? And you can't just say, oh, well, you know, they're out to get. No, they're not out to get anybody. Targeting across college football this year is basically one penalty for every five games, give or take. Well, Oregon, unfortunately, its defense has committed so far in nine games, three of these penalties. Well, it is what it is. I don't know what to tell you. They just have to 
execute it better. You start at the top. Coach, you know, Dan Lanning said, coach it better. And avoid the situations from happening, especially as you can. But I'm not going to get into every which particular and every aspect of the game itself because, again, to me, it's it's just not worth the the thought process. First against worst, first one handily. They were favored by four-plus touchdowns. They won by that. Move on. In terms of this week and the week ahead, in the big picture first and then to, the, to this week, one, because of all those things and the context and the conversation of Oregon's success so far this season, where they find themselves, they're a top 10 team in the thick of the playoff rankings, all those things, which is obviously tremendous. And that's a, a credit to the coaching staff, the players, et cetera, for, for achieving those things. The other aspect of things to bear in mind for things like Bo Nix and the Heisman conversation and playoff rankings and all that that we're going to be talking about on a weekly basis as long as Oregon keeps winning. Things to keep in mind are just context. There's a difference between context and criticism. It is not being critical to say that this offense is playing at an extraordinarily high level, achieving virtually everything it wants to do, and that Bo Nix is playing very, very, very well and playing nearly mistake-free football for the last two months. Nearly, nearly. There's still a couple of couple of issues, a couple of mistakes, a couple of errors, a couple of interceptions. I'm not even counting the, the final throw of the first half at Cal. That's not a mistake. That's that's a Hail Mary. You're just trying to do what you're doing. The behind-the-back pass this past week, you know, other than the fact that stylistically it was a bit peculiar, but in terms of trying to keep the play alive, that's not really something to criticize. The manner in which it occurred, well, that's a little unusual, but what can you do? I'm talking more in the context that while you can have great achievement, great performance, play nearly mistake-free, all those things can be true and are, while also contextualizing that the caliber of competition that a large swath of this performance has come against are some of the worst defenses in the country. And that is not going to be the case in the caliber of competition for the next three games of the regular season, and if they make it to the Pac-12 championship game, in that game. That doesn't take away or discredit any of the achievements so far. That contextualizes that, hey, wait a minute, Colorado and Arizona are two of the four worst scoring defenses in the country. And Stanford is also in the bottom 30, really bottom 25 in scoring. That doesn't discredit, that doesn't criticize anybody, whether that be Bo Nix, Kenny Dillingham, or anyone else on the offense. That contextualizes that basically they are supposed to achieve certain levels of success when you are that good against teams that are not on that side of the ball. Again, Colorado and Arizona, two of the bottom four in scoring, two of the bottom six in yards allowed. And again, Stanford and Cal are also in the hundreds out of 131 teams. So four of the defenses that this offense has been an absolute juggernaut against have been among the bottom 25 in the country. Now, 
you still have to go out and do it. It still has to be executed. It still has to be done well. You still have to play mistake free. You still have to make smart decisions. You still have to throw the ball, catch the ball, run the ball, block well. All those things are true. My point is, is that none of these things are mutually exclusive. You have to do all those things against good competition. If you want to be a great team, you have to do it against bad competition and even to be a good team. Oregon clearly is at least a good team. It has put itself in position to be considered among the great teams this season. Other than playing UCLA and doing it against them, offensively in particular, it has not faced a particularly robust defense outside of Georgia, and we obviously know what the outcome of that game was. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm projecting what that means with Washington or Utah or Oregon State or anything else. It's saying that those teams are about to be very, very big steps up in competition compared to some of the defenses that Oregon has played so far. I don't think that discredits or takes away anything from what Nix or Bucky Irving or Troy Franklin or Chase Coda or anybody else has done so far. But you do have to bear in mind that a lot of this is being done by, by really not just racking up all kinds of yards and scores against bad competition. It's not padding stats in that, you know, it's not FCS games or things like that to skew numbers. No, it's just kind of naturally skewed numbers because it's coming against the lower portion of the league. It is what it is. In the lower portion of this league, this season, the lower half of this league has one win, one collectively. The bottom six has one win, Arizona State over Washington, over the top half of the league so far. One. That's just context. Again, that's not criticism. That doesn't invalidate anything. That is just to say that it has been done against weaker opponents. Whereas some other players who are considered in the Heisman conversation right now, or some other teams who are in the top five or top ten in the college football playoff rankings right now, have achieved many of those things against better competition so far. Now, maybe some of their remaining games aren't as difficult because Oregon does have one of the tougher remaining schedules because it's already beaten the weakest teams on its schedule, in many cases, very lopsided fashion in doing so. But it now has a tougher schedule going forward. All right, well, we'll see what that looks like. That's the fun. But for instance, when you look at, just looking at quarterbacks here, in terms of just efficiency, and the, and the passer efficiency rating, as a whole, yeah, Bo Nix is way up there. He's sixth nationally. If you make it against FBS winning teams, he's still in the top 15. It's just instead of being six, he's 13th. Because he's played three winning teams. Georgia, UCLA, and Wazoo. And there are some players who've played six and seven. Hendon Hooker has played seven winning teams in the FBS. That's it's what it is. I, I don't make up the numbers. So does Knicks now have a chance after achieving what he's achieved against and Oregon's offense as a whole, achieving what it is achieved against weaker competition? Does it have a chance? And does he have a chance to achieve huge things collectively and individually 
because of the position they put themselves in, yes. But it only further validates it if he leads this offense against better competition and achieves anywhere near the same level of result. I'm not saying the same because that's being a little unrealistic. Better competition, it should be a little bit more challenging. It should. But if you can maintain it or even exceed it against better competition, that's how you become not just a Heisman contender. That's where you become a Heisman threat. That's where you are in the top three, if not the outright winner. That's where you're not in the top 10 or in the top six of the college football playoff. That's where you are locked in there. When you are achieving against the best competition on your schedule at a high level, week in and week out, against winning really good competition. All right. Can't you, they, they don't control the, the sequencing of the schedule. I'm not knocking anybody. I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm contextualizing that after watching some of the defenses that this team has played the last few weeks outside of UCLA, and frankly, even them to a degree, you know, let's not forget they weren't exactly, you know, they're not loaded with NFL talent down there. That many teams in the Pac-12 conference in the bottom half of the league lack a lot of premier talent, especially on the defensive side. This whole conference doesn't have a ton of talent on the defensive side right now. It just doesn't. Most of it finds itself at Oregon, quite frankly. Oregon, SC, and Washington, as we know. There has not been a ton of NFL caliber talent and future NFL draft picks in the bottom half of the league. Well, that's who Oregon has really plastered a lot of stats and yards and scores against so far in the last five, six weeks of the season. It has. To its credit. Good. And from that perspective, if you're a fan, you're happy about that. How about it? But you go from being in the conversation or a dark horse in a conversation for whatever the case is, whatever the context is, to being in the forefront when you do it against the very best. That, to me, is the delineation of the demarcation between a C.J. Stroud or Drake May or Hendon Hooker and those quarterbacks right now and where Bo Nix finds himself because of the sample size of the caliber of competition that they've played to date. Now, that is going to change quite dramatically the next three weeks. Bo Nix goes out there and plays exactly like he's been playing against the best competition that Oregon's going to play over the next three weeks, four weeks. We're in a totally different conversation in the first week in December. But this is where rubber meets the road now. And it starts with a rivalry that obviously needs no introduction to this fan base. So, again, we will uh, get into it and discuss it with Mike Farrell of the Seattle Times and get into that. Uh, and get into the big picture as this uh, rivalry takes a different kind of tone and tenor uh, with two first-year head coaches at Oregon and Washington, a different um, style, obviously, that they're each bringing to the table, not just in terms of the rivalry, but to their programs. And as a result, it takes a little bit of a different um, tone and tenor off the field so far this week of game week. You know, we're not talking about academic prowess and recruiting and all those sorts of things um, necessarily that may change going forward. I'm not sure. <laughs> we'll see what happens on Saturday. If we get a particular installment and injection of uh, uh, particular animus uh, that adds to this one, but and to me embrace the fact that this is the third time in four meetings of this rivalry that both teams are going to be ranked. That's that to me is what makes great rivalries beyond the regionality and all those other factors that can make for it organically, 
where rivalries to me take a next step is when the games have huge importance. When you get to November and there's a lot at stake. And as we know, for the last decade, that has been the case in this game. Whether we've got divisions or no divisions, that's not the point. The game has meant something. And beyond that it just does, the game has tangible meaning and carries a high degree of weight in conference standings and pursuits of championships and those things. For these two first-year head coaches, there's a lot at stake. Even if there's not all the history attached to either one of them just yet, they'll be writing the first chapter of it on Saturday. There is still a lot at stake. That, to me, is where this first meeting, this first chapter of the DeBoer-Lanning era of the Oregon-Washington rivalry begins, is that you have a game with significant stakes, significant meaning. And whether or not you have a a trash talk or anything like that else or, or headlines back and forth, I don't think you necessarily need that immediately to have that. Last year, we had lots of it. We, <laughs> it makes certainly made the job pretty fun and, and interesting and compelling. But I don't think you automatically have to have that and need that in order for it to be compelling. I think this week will be compelling. This game will be compelling regardless. And that's with two transfer quarterbacks and two first-year head coaches. I don't think you need a, a sports almanac and a history book and lesson in order to know and appreciate that this game is going to mean a lot. So with that, we'll chat with Mike Varell of the Seattle Times, get his perspective on Washington and the here and now and the big picture as well. And yes, obviously this rivalry as well. And we'll chat with Mike coming up. And we now welcome to this week's edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast, Washington beat reporter for the Seattle Times, Mike Varell, who, of course, you can follow on Twitter, as always, at Mike Varell. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks, James. Much appreciated. Well, uh, it is that time of year. Um, It is finally the week that is upon us, Mike. And since it is that week, uh, I wanted to take a little bit of a different uh, kind of approach to – the podcast this week insofar as rather than getting into every which player and matchup and you know at, at times when I have uh, opposing beat writers on for some of the other games especially from the south division uh, sometimes I have to introduce you know casual fans to like who are some of the players on this other team because you may not follow them every week but as we know with this rivalry and because of the regionality of it uh, there are even not just the diehard fans. There are plenty of casual fans who follow what goes on at the other program on a weekly basis. Um, particularly this past off season, these two programs were quite interlinked. So, as a result of that, probably not going to get as much into the X's and O's and and all every which name and personality on the uh, you know, going down the depth chart perspective, and much more on the broad and bigger picture perspective because uh, these two programs find themselves in similar footing insofar as first-year head coaches, transfer quarterbacks, uh, and really kind of a, a I don't want to say totally unknown, but like what were expectations in the offseason? And certainly in the Twitterverse and Twitter space and all that stuff and the interaction back and forth between fan bases, uh, which is part of the fun, 
there was all the, you know, conjecture and, and Washington fans who were super optimistic and Ducks fans who were super optimistic and back and forth. And lo and behold, we get to this week and they had a, you know, for sure, proves to be where there's a lot of cause. There was good cause and validation for that optimism. We have a very meaningful game in this rivalry, which that's that's what we're in it for. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, it makes makes our jobs a lot more fun uh, and interesting and compelling when uh, when this game has a particular meaning to it. So from your perspective, uh, what has that, what has the last several months, not just the last couple of weeks, but what has sort of the uh, big picture, 30,000 foot, here's this new staff, here's this transfer quarterback, and whatever the expectations were in May, June, July, et cetera, and how we've gotten here now in November? Yeah, I think for the most part, like you said, it's been affirming where, you know, before the season, I predicted that they'd be eight and four. And I think they're kind of on that track. Obviously, if you look the rest of the way, I mean, Oregon, we'll talk about this more, but it's going to be a tough one for you to have, you know, of course, to win on the road. But then you've got a, a really, really bad Colorado team and, you know, you close the year out uh, at Washington State. So this should be at least an eight win team, maybe a nine win team. But, you know, in the way that they've done it, I think with some extremes, it's it's the way that you envisioned or the way that you hoped where, you know, Michael Penix Jr., the transfer quarterback, has been better than I think anyone could have imagined. But, you know, they hired Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb and co. for a reason, and that was to be exciting, to be explosive, to score points, to, to you know, to open up the possibilities and to really maximize the potential of this wide receiver core. And they've done all of that and more. And I think the potential weaknesses have been weaknesses where, you know, going into this season, if you're a UW fan or if you follow the team, you know, and even Kalen DeBoer said at media days, like there are spots that we know that we can't suffer injuries. And those are the areas where they've had an injury, you know, to, to both their starting corners and to a starting safety and these places where they couldn't afford to go beyond the starters. They've had to do that. There hasn't been much depth and they've really, really, really uh, struggled. So I think, on the whole, though, I mean, it's been a positive first impression for DeBoer, and it, the things that they thought might be good have been really, really good, and the things that they worried might be bad have been pretty bad. So I think uh, on the whole, it's been affirming, but if you can somehow go in and, and win a game that you're not supposed to win at Oregon, that really pushes this over the top to not just being as expected uh, or encouraging, but to being really beyond the scope of what you thought was possible. I think by default, it was basically understood that this was going to become a much more wide open uh, and potent and productive offense as a whole, but most especially so through the air. Um, I think that was kind of understood in, in bringing in DeBoer, seeing what he did at Fresno State, certainly, uh, and the numbers that they put up. And in bringing in Penix, I understand certainly the history there uh, and, and why he, he – ends up being a fit in a lot of ways and, and how he's been as productive as he has at the same time what was really the real I'd say realistic expectations Mike of here is this quarterback who at his best certainly had some really big moments at Indiana at the same time he you know obviously has dealt with a, you know myriad injuries before uh, and against some of the better defenses he played had some really rough moments um, and I realize now the board was not there the whole time for that and everything else. But what was kind of realistic by way of expectations? Because even if the the most ardent of Washington fans thought this is going to be a much more explosive passing attack, and it has been, I'm not sure 
really, where, where do we put the, the benchmark by way of either passing yards, completion percentages, touchdown interceptions, you name it? Like, I, I don't know what exactly the, the number was. So what was kind of the thought process out there? And then how unrealistic did it start to get after the first three or four games and, and where we find ourselves today? Well, that was always the thing hanging over Michael Penix Jr. was the injury question because it's a guy who had never played more than six games in a season. And there wasn't a small sample size. It was four seasons of playing six or fewer games. So, you know, we hit that point this year where you're around halfway through and you're thinking, okay, when's the bottom going to fall out if it is? And obviously he's stayed healthy. And part of that is, you know, when you have a team – and an offensive line in a scheme where you're giving up less than one sack per game. They're giving up you know, 0.78 sacks per game. And I know that Oregon's been even better, but Washington's been really, really good in that regard, and that's been really helpful. And he also is a quarterback who deserves a lot of you know, credit for understanding defenses and shifting protections and knowing how to get rid of the football and all those things. But that's a big part of it. And as far as you know, the rest of his game, I, I think he obviously is playing far better than, than even the height of his time in Indiana. But he really was a quarterback who held on to the football until last season. and Things kind of fell apart for him last season. He threw a bunch of interceptions. Uh, he was forcing it on a bad team and a bad offense. And I think he's gotten back to more of himself, uh, you know, this fall and things have kind of clicked. I, th- I think the Penix thing, you know, of course, he's kind of the face of this and, and has been so productive, and has been prolific and has been the right guy for this offense. I think what's really damning from, you know, a, not a system perspective, but, you know, when you look at John Donovan last year and Jimmy Lake and all those people, it's that really the offensive line this year is exactly the same except for Luke Wattenberg and the wide receiver core is exactly the same in terms of who's producing. The tight ends are exactly the same. So in that passing game, the skill players outside of Michael Penix Jr. haven't changed. But Roma Dunze, look at the way he's exploded. Jalen McMillan, he's exploded. Jalen Polk's been really solid. You know, Giles Jackson did so little last season and has done a lot more. You know, these are guys who have been in this system, who have been at this school and did relatively little last season. And now we're seeing in the right system, um, putting them in positions to succeed what they're capable of. To your point, yeah, that's really the damning aspect of things um, for the former regime is the whole idea and concept with coaches is, yeah, you want to get guys who fit your bit, but at the collegiate level, high school and college, you're supposed to be adapting to your personnel. Right. And and the and particularly in the early stages, so yeah, maybe if if Donovan you know really wanted to get around to doing what he wanted to do, yeah, I, I'm with it. But ultimately, but if you've got guys who are physically capable of doing a lot more, it really does make you scratch your head and ask why in the world would you not be able to better utilize guys who clearly have these these skills and capabilities. Um, and, and find ways to either get them the ball or, or find ways to be just different in your approach. Um, even if you're in your heart of hearts, you want to do something a little different. All right, well, do that once you get, you know, quote unquote, your guys by way of every which style and fit and et cetera, et cetera. But in the interim, maximize, you know, the, the whole point of coaching is not just about doing it your way. It's about, yeah, as we all know, it's it's maximizing and helping people maximize their potential. And clearly, uh, I think, as as many have noted, um, that was not happening uh, before, clearly, on the offensive side of things for Washington. And they're, you know, like I said, that's a credit to DeBoer and their staff now is taking very much the same group of collection of guys and getting a ton out of it. Uh, what what has been outside of, yes, obviously, changing quarterbacks is, is significant there, Mike. But what has been, do you think, the 
the biggest real structural change there. Um, and if it's within the scheme and it's, and it's about play calling and it's about system, is it just simply that they're much more spread out and they're not going to be a, you know, 12 and 13 personnel pound it, um, run style team. And that's, that's just it is it's just a big shift to passing that much more. Yeah. I think that's, you know, most of it, it obviously they're still capable of running the ball. They're not one of the more effective teams in the PAC 12 of doing that. But, and I think that's something that's been a bit of a frustration for Ryan Grubb and co that they, you know, they've got a bunch of different running backs and a guy like Cameron Davis who, you know, leads all running backs in the conference and touchdowns. And, but obviously this is a, a pass happy team and it's one where, you know, they get things going with, with easy completions and, and they are way more spread out than they were in the past with their running backs. You know, they're willing to, to, you know, put their tight ends out wide and Jack Westover, one of their tight ends, scored a touchdown that way against uh, Oregon State last week. And they just do – there's a lot more exotic in what they do and, and they're not as – you know, if they are stubborn, it might be in the opposite direction in terms of, of sticking with the system they have. I think Jimmy Lake and John Donovan were very stubborn in, in the opposite direction when it comes to – doing as much as they did with eye formation, with power between the tackles, and there just wasn't a lot of creativity, a lot of ingenuity there. But I think, you know, the beauty of this offense right now is is that they're really, they're utilizing so much personnel where it's not just Roma Dunze, it's not just Jalen McMillan. You've got Jalen Polk, Giles Jackson. You've got two tight ends that play a lot, and Jack Westover and Devin Culp can, can both catch the ball. They throw to their running backs. So, I mean, there's been so many games this year where Penix has had 10, 11, 12 receivers who catch passes. So, uh, in that way, it, it's unfathomable how different they are from the previous regime. And it's really obviously led to a change in, I mean, it, it probably takes a little bit longer to say there's a full, full-blown full scale um, change in identity. But as we know in college football, it, it can shift that quickly. And I think for the better part of a decade, Washington was probably thought of, like, if you had to ask what the program identity was, for the last 10 plus years, I would think a lot of people probably would just default to the strength of the defense, particularly the secondary and the volume of players they had drafted out of there. Um, now, very quickly, they've they've really shifted to being much more of an offensive-based team and one where parts of their defensive identity, and like you touched on already, like they were going to change personnel. They had lost some really good players and it was going to be hard. Um, to maintain certain aspects of, of historical context by way of the secondary. But beyond changes of personnel, I mean, I don't think anybody says they want to become worse um, at anything that they used to be really good at. So what has been, whether it's surprising, what's been unsurprising, what's been kind of the defensive identity of this team amid transition where it's understood that, yeah, there's going to be some areas that in year one, you're not going to fix all of your ills. Yeah, I mean, that that's pretty easy to diagnose, honestly, because like, you know, last week we asked Chuck Morrell, the co-defensive coordinator, how this team has been so much better statistically against the run because, you know, they went from being 10th and 11th in most categories in the Pac-12 last year to being first or second this year prior to the Oregon State game. And obviously Oregon State was going to be a massive test. And I, he just said, you know, math, really. I mean, it's it's really this that they've decided to stop the run. They've decided to commit numbers to stop the run. The thing with Jimmy Lake's defense you know, nobody wanted to play five, six, seven, eight defensive backs more than Jimmy Lake. I mean, he, he, that was his background. That's what he loved to do. And, and, you know, they went into those sub packages as often as they possibly could. And really, this defense is much more the opposite, where they're trying to stop the run at all costs. And if they have to leave 
a cornerback on an island, then that's what they're, they're going to do. Unfortunately, they don't really have the cornerbacks who are capable of covering that way, so they've been burned for touchdowns. But the other side of that is that they've been, you know, um, perhaps the best pass rush, you know, defense in the conference. I think they're either first or second in the Pac-12 in sacks right now. Uh, they've stopped the run much better, and that's like I said. You know, they really have the same personnel outside of a couple inside linebackers. The defensive linemen are the same. They've just kind of decided philosophically to do those things. And, you know, if they had Trent McDuffie and if they had Kyler Gordon, uh, they'd probably be a lot more um, able to to cover and make up for those things on the back end. But they've struggled and they've had injuries in, in those areas. So I think when it comes to what they're doing well, what they're doing poorly, it all, it all comes back to the philosophical ap- approach of saying we're just not going to get gashed up front the way that we had last season. So the rivalry specifically, Mike, um, obviously we know last year, at this time last year, in terms of the game week, um, we were weighing in about academic prowess and uh, how many words is the right number of words on Jimmy Lake's radio show and everything else. Um, and then obviously the game itself and the horrific rain conditions and then Mario after the game saying that they're everything that's wrong with football and it, just a lot of the vitriol and the venom that was a part of it. Well, now we have two first-year head coaches and – Obviously, I'm not talking about, you know, it's not for us to talk on behalf of fans. We understand that fans are going to be super uh, animated and into a rivalry. What do you think, the and what is your impression so far of what this rivalry is going to be now in this DeBoer-Lanning era? Because it's clearly different. Um, it's not the level of back and forth just yet, you know, I realize it's it's less than a year for each of them, so I suppose give it some time. At the same time, they were both they were both not just respectful of each other. Uh, on and here we are recording on Tuesday, so we were talking about on Monday's press conferences. Not just so much that they were respectful; it wasn't disingenuous, or it wasn't um, uh, kind of reserved in its respectfulness. Um, not over the top in praise either, just in general. They were, I think, rather sincere about it, at least how it came off to me from both of them. How do you think this rivalry either takes a different tone or a different temperature um, compared to where it was only a year ago? Or like I say, last year it was, as we know, uh, very <laughs> pretty pretty high on the vitriol uh, meter. Uh, it was it was about as probably as, as animated um, and as heated as it had been in, in some time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I don't know if I would say it's the beauty, it might be the opposite of this rivalry, but it's hard to say, is that the fact that the vitriol um, is unnecessary when it comes to the coaches and players, because these fans, the fan bases, uh, I don't think the vitriol has changed from their perspective whatsoever. No. And I no. think when <laughs> in, in either of our mentions on, on our Twitter pages, uh, it's just, in mine at least, it's just both sides yelling at each other that they're in the other's head rent-free. And yep. it's happening simultaneously. So uh, they didn't need a spark from the coaches to start a fire. And I think that's already long past gone. I think, you know, the the, the taking shots from a Jimmy Lake standpoint or a Mario standpoint, that's really not going to happen, at least in, in, the, in the near term. When you talk about a Kalen DeBoer, it's hard to find a more respectful guy and a more likable guy, honestly. And I think Dan Lanning is uh, in a very similar, uh, you know, path. So... Um, I think it's, you know, the players are going to follow their coaches and I think it's going to be respectful in that regard. But like I said, um, you don't need much more than that when the 
the hatred or the vitriol is so ingrained in the fan bases. And two, what's more important is that both teams are good. You know, just having a game that matters between two ranked teams um, should add a lot more than than an, an off you know an offhand hand comment from Jimmy Lake in a lost season ever would. So I think there's plenty to to wrap your arms around whether you know the coaches are taking shots at each other or not. Yeah, and, I was, and, and that's the other part of it. You're right, is that um, for as many players, and there, there aren't many, um, on Oregon's roster who were around the last time that Washington won in this series, um, there aren't that many left from 2017 and 2016. Uh, there are a couple. So you have that side of things. On the other hand, um, you know, especially going forward in terms of you know projecting out what, what could the era of these two coaches mean in this rivalry, uh, it could very much be, heaven forbid, yeah, just strictly about results and, and the general importance of the game and let that carry it enough because this is the eighth time that these teams will meet as ranked opponents. And three of those times have happened in the last four meetings. That, to me, should be... And we'll see, obviously, what the outcome is. Obviously, the last two went to Oregon in terms of those those perspectives. Last three as a whole, last two where, where they were all ranked. That should carry it enough to me. I mean, why, why are we, you know, the other stuff is fun and it makes for headlines. And again, it makes our jobs some, some fun and amusing. But, you know, to me, the, the rivalries take on a different level of meaning and importance when, you know, out of 112, 113, 114 meetings, eight, eight have been, <laughs> where yeah. they're both ranked in three of the last four. That's cool. That's where it's like, it takes a different level. Whereas... You know, again, I, I don't. I'm not going to go through every annal of history, but the meetings way, way back in the day in the 30s and 40s and 50s, where you know there were a lot of some not just lopsided scores, but teams who were just not ranked at that level because the programs were in a different era, in different world. And yeah, not for nothing, I think this rivalry could take on a greater importance not just to each school, but to the conference, whatever conference that may be going forward for both of them. Um, and, and also to the national landscape, because honest to goodness, outside of the sec and maybe Ohio state, Michigan, now that, that Michigan's gotten back on track the last few years, um, I'd have to be hard pressed truly to think of a, a true regional rivalry anywhere in the country and the power five who has had three of the last four meetings be among ranked teams. And and I mean that even in some of the historic SEC rivalries, where that's you know that may have been the case before, but not in the last couple of years. So this has the chance to be like that, and that's that's to me where where it can really start to become that much bigger, uh, which you know is, I'm sure for some fans would be hard to imagine, and that it's big for them all the time. But I think when the games matter is when it takes a different level. Yeah, and I think for me. You know, I've always been annoyed by this concept. I think maybe somebody tweeted it last year when UW wasn't any good, which was the, just the week of the game asking, well, how, how could this be a rivalry? Because it's been so one-sided with Oregon winning a bunch, even though UW has won more historically. And to me, it's just, you just look, just look on Twitter. I mean, yeah. a rivalry can be one-sided for long stretches of time. But if the fan bases don't like each other and the teams don't like each other, it's a rivalry. And this is from that perspective, about as healthy a rivalry as there can be. These teams, you know, when, when a matchup stops being a rivalry is when neither side cares. And that's what I think is, is truly the mark of, of, you know, whether a regional rivalry is strong or not. And, of course, 
both sides are going to care all the more when when both teams are competitive. And hopefully we're going into, you know, a span where both these programs are simultaneously competitive in a way that, like you said, hasn't happened very often in this series. But, you know, to say that because UW's only won twice in the last 15 years or 17 years, I think it is. I mean, yeah, we'd, UW fans certainly would like it to be more, more balanced than that. But, you know, this game matters to everybody. It matters to Oregon fans. It matters to Washington fans. Um, there's no lack of care um, from either side, and hopefully we're going into a period where it matters nationally as well. And that's it. I mean, it, it, the, the whole idea that a lopsided rivalry therefore means it goes away, like that's that's preposterous because Ohio State-Michigan was lopsided for nearly 20 years, and it just takes just takes one right. to all of a sudden, you know, that, that totally shifts, and that changes an entire trajectory of how Harbaugh is thought of. That changes the trajectory of the program. That changes obviously just further led to the expediting of a change in defensive staff and philosophy at Ohio State last year. Um, look at where we just see it this season with Tennessee and Alabama. Tennessee was never beating Alabama under Nick Saban, ever. And that snaps. And what? That, that setting wasn't so far, in my opinion, the best in the sport so far this season that night in Knoxville. I mean, it doesn't take much. Right. So yeah, the idea that like oh it's lopsided, it's therefore that's that's always been ludicrous, for exactly that reason because enough people and enough is the the attachment uh, in the fan base and the pain that one fan base feels <laughs> for so long it just adds to it and then the the anybody who gets lackadaisical because for the fans who yeah it's it's part of it no wrong but if you ever start to feel like you're entitled to the win and the rivalry. You know, you can get humbled real quick. That that's that's the beauty of it. Um, that that can go back the other way real fast. So especially where, hey, I don't want to say you're just a fan, but you're not out there on the field doing the hitting uh, or taking the hits. Um, it's a little bit different for you. Um, you know, when you're when you're spouting off on Twitter or or whatever the case may be, that's one thing, and that's fine, and that's fun. But you know, it's it's a little bit different when you're on the field. And yes, you can get humbled as a fan pretty quickly when when your team you know doesn't show up one day. It does happen, you know. Believe it or not, it, it can occur. They are still young people; they're still humans. They're, yeah. These are not machines. So, what um, what do you think beyond just? Uh, I'm not going to get into predicting outcomes and stuff, Mike. But do you, do you think there is anything that that becomes the first chapter of this on Saturday? Is is there something that makes it into the into the annals per se, other than the outcome? Because yes, it is still big, and it's big for both sides. Where Look, for Oregon's perspective, obviously we know the playoff and making it to the conference championship game and all those sorts of things. Um, and those could still stay alive with a loss, but it takes a bit of a hit combined with, for Washington's purposes, this would be, I would venture to guess, this would be if, if Washington were to come into Odson and win, which is not completely outside the realm of possibility by any stretch of the imagination, this would go down as probably one of the bigger wins in, in Washington the last... 10 plus years, I would think. Oh, there's no question. I mean, especially for a program that under Chris Peterson, you know, failed to win the big game in terms of the, the New Year's six game. You know, they beat Oregon, obviously, a couple times, but they also beat a down Oregon a couple times. If you go into Odson and beat the number six team in the country, you know, that's absolutely massive. And I think, you know, when you talk about what could theoretically stand out in the annals of this rivalry, you know, we're probably bound to get some pretty good quarterback uh, performances on Saturday. When you, when you look at, 
you know, UW struggling as much as it has, one in pass defense, but also against dual threat quarterbacks. I mean, Bo Nix should have a lot of success. And same with Michael Penix Jr., right, where, you know, Oregon's, you know, pass defense obviously has struggled a lot. Their third down defense has been really poor, and UW's third down defense has been excellent. And if you want to be, or third down offense, rather, has been excellent. And if you want to be Michael Penix Jr. and come in and really put a stamp on your season at Washington and become that guy that's remembered here, I mean, beating Oregon is the way to do it. I mean, Edifuan Ulafoshio, who's obviously coming back from injury and, and played a little bit against Oregon State, will play more this week. Um, he said today that this would be a program-defining win. And, of course, you know, for, for Washington, it hasn't happened a lot in the last two decades. But when you do beat Oregon, that's a program-defining win for a coach. Um, so for Kalen DeBoer, if he were to do something like that in his first season, I mean, it's hard to imagine a, a rosier outlook than that. So, you know, I think it, it should be an interesting game. You know, if, you know, I'll, obviously, like, like a lot of other people, I think that Oregon, you know, has a lot going in its favor. But if UW were to pull this out, it would require a, um, a very strong performance from Michael Penix Jr. And I think if they were able to do that, Kalen DeBoer um, would really cement – his standing uh, in his early tenure at UW. Last thing, Mike, is we're dealing with it with first-year head coaches, but coaches outside of the, the unusual circumstance, coaches will be around for a minute. So that you know that takes time, and they'll they'll get into it much more on the recruiting trail and the back and forth. And I'm not sure that necessarily the mudslinging will quite reach the level that it did under the the prior regimes, but we'll see. But we're also dealing with programs where they each have transfer quarterbacks. And the other aspect, and we know that we're in the portal era and, and the elimination of um, the, the signing limit. So the one-time transfers there. So college football is going to be changing a whole lot going forward. And that's going to have an impact on lots of things, but it's also going to have an impact on rivalries and, and regional rivalries specifically. Do you think that games like this will take a, I'm not going to say better or worse, it's just different. Do they start to become a little different insofar as when the quarterbacks are transfers and that they don't have particular uh, connection or um, affinity for all the history? And I'm not saying that in a negative light. Because fans are always dialed in and this is part of who they are, if they're an alum or that's where they're from or that's where mom or dad went or whoever, um, or they played and they're you know, their former player, it takes a different level. Whereas guys like Penix and Knicks, they know all about their time at Indiana and Auburn respectively, but we were talking to Bo Nix today and I'm not knocking the young man for it. I would say the same thing at Penix. I don't know. You know, They're not there to take a history lesson on this rivalry. Or for Oregon's purposes, uh, with Oregon State, or for Washington's purposes, the Apple Cup. That you know, they don't need to do that. Fans can rattle off every which thing. These guys, they're twenty-something years old. They're not going to know what happened fifty years ago, and they're not supposed to. But does it take? Does it change the tone and tenor at all, in your opinion? Um, when more, not just it starts with the quarterbacks, but it's going to start to be that way across rosters, where you know, there's going to be probably not that far removed. Probably a few years from now, there's probably going to be majority, some cases, the majority of certain rosters is going to be transfers. And I'm not sure what the impact of that's going to be on rivalry games. I don't know. I'm not pretending to have the answer. I'm curious what your perspective is on it. Yeah, I think there's an element to it. I don't think, you know, I don't think it tarnishes it. And obviously, like you said, when there's a fan base, you know, this these are people who grew up in Washington or grew up in Oregon and went to that school 
and you know grew up liking one team and disliking another. And I don't think that concept is going anywhere. But like you mentioned, I mean, we talked to Michael Penix Jr. today and asked him what he knows about this rivalry, and he says, honestly, not a whole lot, except for I know we're not supposed to like them and they're not supposed to like us. But if you're asking him deep down if he feels it, I don't think he feels any way one way or the other about Oregon, nor, nor really should he. But, you know, I, I don't know how much that honestly, from a more broad perspective, affects the rivalry itself because UW fans are going to hate Oregon and Oregon fans are going to hate UW. And I feel like that just on the basis of the annual meeting and what it means and the regional ties isn't going away. But uh, certainly if both teams on the field don't feel that down the line, you know, maybe it'll start to diminish in some way. But I don't think we're anywhere near that. It'll be interesting to see, like you said, when it is a bunch of one and done guy, uh, one and done guys, in, in some perspectives, or someone who came in from Tampa, if you're a Michael Penix or, or Alabama or wherever, how that'll affect the product. But I think to this point, it's more just a guessing game, and, and, and two quarterbacks who haven't experienced it. But it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, how they stamp their 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 mark on this rivalry on Saturday. Yeah, like I say, I'll be curious to see what it looks like. And I'm, I'm obviously, it'll be several years from now. But I, I think that, it, like, for instance, another rivalry where we could see that more is like at Arizona and Arizona State with the Territorial Cup. Because while the state produces a lot of talent, so you could still have that, it's also still been, historically speaking, a transplant state in terms of people moving out there. Um, so not necessarily people who their entire lives and their entire families' lives have just been to, you know, have <laughs> have a level of hatred for the other school. But combined with the fact that those are two programs right now, why I mentioned them is obviously they're going through rebuilds and one has a you know a new head coach and the other one's going to have a new head coach. Well, what does that look like four and five years from now in terms of what those rosters look like and what's the composition and, and where the sport's headed? Will, will people have the same level of, of attachment in that way in terms of the players themselves to rivalries and those things i have no idea that's what i say i don't know I, that's i was curious in perspective because i don't know um i'm gonna be curious to see it but clearly as you mentioned yes the fan bases who uh who read our work and who are uh, in our twitter mentions and email boxes um they're, they're uh they, they don't need to be reminded at all uh they're they're very much uh, they've been dialed into this for some time um and frankly again it's a lot more fun when this one does have meaning um i, I would be it would still be super passionate regardless, no matter what the record is, but when it is this good and when they're both going to be ranked in the top 25, yeah, I'm all for it. That's that's what makes these games a lot more fun and compelling and interesting. It makes for great environments. So looking forward to it as always. Um, I certainly appreciate your time and perspective as always, Mike. Again, people you can check out on Twitter, at Mike Burrell, and of course, all his work as always in the Seattle Times. Look forward to seeing you again this weekend, Mike, and uh, certainly safe travels down from Seattle. Thanks, James. Should be fun. <laughs>